Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to the producers of interesting content and see if we can learn a little bit more about their background. Joining us today is Dr. Rue Birch, who is an associate professor at Kobe University. Very nice to speak to you today. Well, thank you for having me. The paper we're going to be speaking about today is Assessing Interactional Competence, the Role of Intersubjectivity in a Paired Speaking Assessment Task. And one of the things that drew my interest to this paper is that even despite my background and what I generally do for a living, we don't talk a lot about uh, language teaching and the practicality of it. But to start, could you give us uh, some background to yourself and also to what motivated this study? Okay, so uh, so background on myself. My general background methodologically is conversation analysis. And uh, so everything that I work on, all of my publications and research are methodologically grounded in that field. Um, it's very sociological, anthropological. Um, so it's coming from another outside of applied linguistics, although in recent years, it has become more common in applied linguistics. Um, my general interests, strangely enough, are in things like motivation, task orientation, um, and things like that. So a lot of my other research tends to be either on examples that are outside of the classroom. So someone who's living in the language and looking at their orientation towards learning while going about life. And then otherwise, I also do a lot of task-based language teaching uh, material as well, kind of looking at how students orient to task completion, uh, how do they interpret what the task is. I'm a bit of an interloper in terms of testing and uh, assessment. The way that this came about is as I was working at Rice University as a postdoc, my supervisor decided that he wanted to do a conference on assessing speaking. And so we start working on this, putting this together. At the same time, uh, I go to AAAL in uh, Chicago. This was, I think, 2018. And I'm rubbing elbows with the people who I would like to invite to be our plenary speakers there, of course. So people like Karsten Rover, Stephen Ross, who are in language testing, who also have a background in conversation analysis. And uh, so I'm there kind of trying to get in touch with some of the testing and assessment people to begin with. And my colleague and I, uh, Su Jong Yoon, happened to go into a talk by India Plow and uh, Jay Banerjee um, and Noriko Iwashita, although she wasn't there, called Interactional Competence and Inconvenient Truth, which was basically based upon what they did for their special issue of language testing in 2018. And we were pleasantly surprised when India herself was talking about how IC assessment, interactional competence assessment, needs to start looking at embodiment, at nonverbal behavior. And as soon as they're talking about that, Su Jung looks over at me and says, well, you've been working on this kind of thing for a long time. And that became kind of the genesis of the special issue uh, that we put out in papers and language testing and assessment. So that's one way that, uh, or one branch that led into where this uh, came from. The other is that while at Rice, they were really serious about trying to bring in interactional competence into the classroom 
and into language assessment. Part of why I was hired there was actually training teachers, training the uh, teaching staff to, you know, in what ways can they focus on interactional competence? What phenomena could they bring into their classrooms? Well, if I could, if I could interject at that point, yes. because this is a point that I'm very, very interested in, particularly when it comes to teacher training. Yes. So um, how open were the teachers to changing their, uh, the way that they taught or the way that they assessed based on interactional competence? There was both some, you know, interest in it and uh, some perhaps reticence to some extent. Um, my predecessor, Sylvia Kunitz, um, had already done a great deal of work with them. Um, so she had basically paved the road uh, when I got there. And uh, the hardest part of the work she had actually taken care of. Um, so when it came to that, it was not uh, too much difficulty. But there are certain things that provide some challenges when looking at interactional competence. I mean, one of them is, and we mentioned this in the paper, you know, interactional competence, when we normally think of it, requires methodologically, if you want to get into the weeds, a lot of time. You're video recording and you're transcribing. And really, no teacher has the time to do that. Well, it, it also requires, uh, if you're going to be using it as a form of assessment, it requires a lot of buy-in from the teacher to actually include it in their courses. Indeed. So um, would you say that what you were bringing to the, the faculty at Rice included, I mean, you said that your, your predecessor paved a lot of the way. Um, do you think that what you did changed it a great deal, slightly, a little? Well, there were other things going on at the, uh, at the school that had an influence on this. Um, but I would do these weekly or bi-weekly workshops uh, with faculty who chose to join. And there was, I mean, it wasn't a huge faculty be to begin with. Um, I would say that we had a regular group of about six or seven of the teaching staff that would come to these uh, weekly or biweekly meetings. And what we would often do is I would ask one of them to bring in some interactional data in whatever language they're working. So be it Japanese, Korean, Spanish, Italian, et cetera. And they would bring it in and we would do some simplified conversation analysis on it because basically I was training them to be able to do this. Then the following week, we would look at the same data and then say, what implications for interactional competence teaching or assessment can we draw from this? what is here that we could take into the classroom as a model for our students. So it was, it was kind of like a ad hoc action research kind of community of yeah. teachers. Generally, before we get into the, the specifics of the paper, generally, how well do you think it uh, went? So usually when people buy into something, like you say, five or six people would turn up on a yeah. regular basis. Um, how well do you think it went? Well, if uh, the fact that one of the faculty members was my co-author on this paper is in the indication, um, you know, I think that it went well for, for some of them. Um, there were certainly people who have taken uh, what we did and have ran with it. Um, and then others, maybe not quite as much um, because it does take some investment of uh, time and energy on their part. Hmm. And uh, I did find folks who were a little bit more, not the newest folks per se, 
the folks who had been maybe five to 10 years into their career were really, really open to it, right? Um, because they were at that spot where they were confident enough as teachers hmm. that uh, they, they knew what they were doing and they were willing to bring in something kind of new. Well, maybe, maybe that's kind of like the donut effect that when you, when you first uh, are qualified, you think you know everything, and then you move out into this five to 10 year and you're open because you're confident enough to, you're open to acting on new information. Yeah. And then you get outside that and I don't know, you've been doing it for 25 years, you've got your textbook, you know what you're doing and, and not um, uh, so interested. So for people who yeah. are interested, um, what would be the, the 101 explanation of interactional competence? Like it, people who are listening to this, who are interested in finding out more about it, yes. how would you explain it to them uh, as simply as possible? Because uh, again, it, it, yeah. it's going to help me as well. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, we can kind of think of it first in terms of what are we hoping that our students that our learners are going to be able to do when they're done with us, right? When we've sent them out into the world, mm. into the wild, what is it that we want them to be able to do? We want them to interact. Well, what, is what does interaction mean? Because we know what, I mean, all of us, when we look at the uh, dialogues that show up in textbooks, we rarely say, wow, this dialogue feels authentic, <laughs> right? We, we don't do that. There, we recognize the made-up dialogues and textbooks as inauthentic for a reason. There are no stops. There are no pauses. There are no restarts in those dialogues. There's no repair. Like, wait, what did you mean? There's no repetition. And certainly there's no overlap. Mm -hmm. And there's no marking of where are they looking? What's their facial expression? And some of the books have the videos that come along with them and you know the actors are doing their best, but really we're not seeing that kind of thing. But when we're talking to each other, we're not just relying upon the word-to-word -word meaning or the grammar of what's being said. We're recognizing other actions that are going on in that talk. We notice that, say, if our mother starts speaking to us very, very politely, she's not being polite, right? We probably made a mistake and then she's uh, angry with us. I've had, I've had that uh, issue recently when I was at a conference and was asked, would you prefer to be called Chris or Christopher? And I said, the only time I'm ever called Christopher is by my mother when I've done something wrong. Perfect example. Yeah. Right. We recognize the implicature, right? And this, this of course, ties into pragmatics as well. Um, we recognize that there's... We, we recognize and ascribe actions to what other people are doing when they are speaking. And that is essentially what interactional competence is, is the ability to not only act as an agent in the interaction, but to recognize and ascribe those actions on the other person's part. It's interesting because I, I teach a, a course in language testing mm -hmm. um, and I focus on the IELTS because I have a background in it, yes. but uh, I've always found it uh, when working as a, a speaking assessor, uh, it's only audio recorded for the ones that are not uh, required by um, government agencies. So when a person is not speaking enough you're able to be like you're able to gesture to them like 
just can you give me some more like make eye contact and do these things that allow them actually to get a better score yeah. because sometimes people in uh in these language tests they're nervous they've not done it before they don't know the format um but if the person who's talking to them is supportive they're likely to speak more yes or that's my experience and so, that gets at an important point there is that yeah. interactual competence is co-constructed right? right that you know we could think of it in terms of scaffolding or we could think of it in terms of like the vygotsky and zpd in this sense but you know it is co-constructed it takes two to tango and in this case that is a good example of that, that their interactional competence is tied in to your interactional competence, not only as a speaker of English on your part, but as a representative of an institution playing an institutional role. Well, it's interesting that you bring up the zone of proximal development because it's essentially what we as teachers believe is, is close enough uh, a gap that we can bring the students up uh, to that level. Yes. Would you say that in terms of the ZPD, that it doesn't need to be a teacher that can pull the, the, the speaker up, that it can also be someone who is in, in the class or in the assessment that can bring them up to that Personally, point? Personally, yeah. I think that uh, in paired speaking tasks, and it doesn't even need to be someone who is technically at a higher level, right? Two students who are essentially at the same level, if they're having a nice interaction, if they're getting into a Chiksenmahaiv type flow state in this interaction, that feedback between the two of them could, could raise this. Absolutely. And it's, there, there's, this come, it, it's, it's slightly outside the zone of the discussion that we're talking about right now. Um, how, where do you stand on the difference in the levels of students? I mean, do you think that streaming students according to their proficiency means that they're more likely to do this? Or would you have students of different proficiencies in the same class? There's pros and cons to, to both sides as far as I'm concerned. Um, I think in most average classes, almost every class I've ever taught, there is a range of proficiencies. I mean, there's really no way of escaping that. Um, and, you know, if you put someone who is, uh, you know, say Sefer A1 in with someone who's C2, no, it's, you know, there, there's a possibility there, but really that C2 is going to probably take on a more institutional-like role. Yeah, they, they, of, become, they become like the teacher in that situation. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, task design matters in this as, as well, right? That uh, if it's certain types of tasks that require, uh, you know, a convergence, hmm. you may find that that difference doesn't make as much of a difference. We just gathered some uh, very cool data at a cooking school where, uh, you know, the, the class was taught in English um, to, to Japanese uh, participants. And uh, one was at the one or two word utterance level. And the other was more comfortable speaking in sentences. But the teacher was so skillful at getting them involved, saying, okay, you're in charge of the flour. You're, you're in charge of the wine. Be more generous with the wine. Ooh, I'd, I'd like to be in charge of that. Yeah, right? And uh, he was so good at getting them involved that this was no longer, I mean, in a lot of cases where there's a teacher and two students, the interaction becomes kind of a V rather than a triangle, right? 
Um, and we've seen this in a lot of places. And he was so good at getting this in, to turn into a triangle and getting those students to interact with each other and to cooperate that he even got them to voluntarily without even telling them to, to operate the hand crank on the pasta maker and mm. cooperate together and speak with each other in English mm. about what they needed to do to get this to work. Mm. And their levels, these two uh, participants, their levels were quite different. Mm. Um, but in the end, it ended up balancing out in such a wonderful way um, that showed not only the teacher's skill, but the participants' interactional competence at getting this task, a non-language-focused task, done. That's a great point. I mean, and it, it's all, it, it all uh, relates to the confidence of the teacher to, I mean, as you said, like going from a V to a triangle, mm -hmm. that's the teacher giving uh, agency to the students to speak, interact, and, and make decisions for themselves in, in the classroom. That yes. takes time and that takes confidence of the teacher. Um, also, the ability to design the task in order for that to happen also requires uh, that kind of um, uh, instructional competence. I'd like to get into the base, uh, I'd like to get into the, the paper and also and discuss some of the task design that's included in here now so the paper talks about um a fairly low stakes as you as you term it uh, end of season speaking and uh, sorry end of semester teaching assessment so worth uh, as it says here five percent of the students grade yes. so these were first language english speakers taking a german class is that correct Yes, one of them was a first language Mandarin okay. speaker, but otherwise, yeah, first language English, um, and yes, taking German. And so, could you could you talk us through what the students were required to do in the test and how you <laughs> analyzed the results? So here's what's uh, one thing to keep in mind is that the this test the what the recordings. They were actually that these were completely separate from research. And it was only later that we looked at it and went, oh, this is actually useful for the research. So the uh, the task design was just the standard task design that she had for her, her classes. This idea, I mean, it's pretty standard with the talk about what you did five years ago, talk about where you're going to be five years from now. I mean, as you said, you're in, you, you do IELTS testing. These kinds of questions come up for the sake of being able to ascertain the ability to use the past tense, the, the ability to talk about hypotheticals, all this kind of stuff. That's really where her task design was. We talked at one point after uh, I had done the analysis. So this is for her class and she transcribed it and I cleaned up the transcription and did the analysis. For me, when I looked at this data, it was, what did we call them? Emma and Casey. Mm -hmm. um, that for, for me, they stuck out as like, wow, this is a cool conversation. Mm -hmm. But for her, at, at when she was doing the original assessment, it was uh, Julian Neal who stuck out as reaching her goals because the, uh, the, she wasn't looking at first at, at much, uh, excuse me, as much at the interactional side as she was trying to get what we would normally put under the rubric of like Canali and Swain's communicative competence. Right, and just to give some background to the people who haven't uh, read uh, the paper, things included in the notations are things like eyebrow flash, um, uh, you know, nodding, slight movement, so these these are things that are perceptible to the the interlocutor, 
and they do you know, even if we don't think about it too much we are physical movement oriented animals and so the things that people do before our very eyes affect the way that we communicate with them was there a difference in the way that you analyzed the kind of physical movement um, and facial expressions to uh, how it was analyzed by your research partner? To my knowledge, she didn't actually look at you know at the embodiment, at the physical side of it quite as much as I did. I think she did notice nods. Eyebrow flashes are something that, again, we do notice, but a lot of people don't attend to, right? Um, so I don't think she really noticed it uh, at, when she looked at it at first. Gaze and stuff like this as well, you know, so like where they're looking. She may have attended to it a little bit, but really her first run through it, to my understanding, um, and I hope that I'm, you know, not mischaracterizing this on her part. Um, that she was going through it just to get the grades mm -hmm. done, right? She oriented to it as a teacher first. Mm -hmm. And it was only after we started talking about the data um, and after I had looked at it more closely that she started recognizing uh, the stuff that was in there. Because this is something that I've brought up in conversations with other people who are linguistically uh, oriented. So mm -hmm. recently I talked to um, Dr. Isabel Pifianco Martin from the University of Manila, yeah. and I asked her about physical expressions. I've also talked about this with uh, Lisa Hunsberger, from, uh, who's from the Caribbean, and how important physical expression is in your language. And um, Dr. Martin brought up the fact, if you're on a plane in Asia, and there's a small group of people giggling and elbowing each other, and having a laugh, they're probably Filipino. Because <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's just part of their culture to literally rib each other and have a laugh. How much of this do you think the reason I asked you whether they were first language speakers of English and obviously you said you said first language speaker of Mandarin and they're speaking in German how much of this was kind of a, a repair strategy for not being able to use the second language to communicate uh, what they were trying to do uh, in the task do you think okay so this is where we get into one of the biggest differences between a, a ca approach to second language talk and many other approaches right maybe i'll, I'll start with a, a little bit of a, a story here when i started looking at the concept of motivation from a ca perspective now ca tries to be cognitively agnostic. We're not reading people's minds. We're, you know, we're not worried about what's happening in the head, which makes looking at things like motivation, engagement, perhaps at first blush, a little bit odd, right? Because these are things that we think of as psychologically internal. And I happen to be, my, my first exploration of this was in a class with Dick Schmidt. And uh, I say at first that I'm taking a cognitively agnostic perspective on motivation. And he says, he just jumps in, and how can you say the brain doesn't matter? Well, I not saying the brain doesn't matter. You need to have a brain in order to be a good conversationalist. But how it matters in the here and now is not something we have access to. Is that uh, not not to, not to stop your flow? But is that is that cultural? I mean, we we, we talked about the idea of uh, having even within CA, understanding the difference between uh, uh, the reaction that comes from this part of the brain and the reaction that comes from this part of the brain. Um, sorry, I'm pointing to the back of my head in front yeah. of me. Um, <laughs> sorry, this is, an, this is an audio podcast, yeah. not a video. Um, so 
is that is that culturally related is that related to first language uh, is that uh, acculturation so to the degree to which it is is an empirical question that has to be built up on a lot of data and a collection of a corpus to be able to truly say that. We have a lot of assumptions about this, right? We, we always bring our, these assumptions, but really to what degree someone does this as compensation, since we can't read their intentions, all that we have is how the other person orients to it. Does the other person orient to it as having been compensatory, right? But as an analyst, does it really matter whether it was compensation? Because what matters is that they reach inner, inner subjectivity, that they come to understand each other. And as they build this repertoire across time, and I, I really like this concept of an interactional repertoire. Um, John Kelly Hall uh, discusses this in a 2018 paper, that as they have this repertoire building and they're diversifying their repertoire, they have more tools in their toolbox per se, then what is more orientable, is that a word, <laughs> as, uh, as compensation? probably becomes less noticeable. Right. I, would, I would agree with you on that one. And uh, it's something, the, the idea, the, the imagery of a toolbox is something that has been brought up before uh, in research that I did on listening with Dr. Joe Siegel from the mm -hmm. University of Orebo. Yeah. Um, but the imagery is, is very useful uh, in the area that I'm looking at right now, which is English as a lingua franca. So mm -hmm. we always talk about it not just in terms of the vocabulary that you use but in terms of the strategies that you have and we have um, myself and my, my research partner Aaron Han we've had some pushback on the idea that gesture is a way of repairing communication which I didn't think would be in any way controversial um, just gesturing something being big or something being small or something being tall or um, just to help the conversation move I've always thought that the most important thing in a second language or third language, but uh, using another language as a mutual form of communication required gesture. And so I've always built that into my classes. Was there any difference between the first language English users and the first language Mandarin user? Uh, in terms of how they attempted to fix communication breakdown through gesture or facial expression? So in that case with Julie and Neil, so Julie was the Mandarin speaker, mm -hmm. neither of them used a lot of gesture. Their gestural space tended to be very minimal and near the table, mm. right? There was a little bit of facial expression but it, it was very minimal. But in the same way that their third turns, and what I mean by third turn, so you have like a question, answer, and then the third turn is, what do you do in response to that answer, right? Mm -hmm. Their third turns tended to be pretty minimal too. Mm -hmm. Oh, cool. Oh, okay. Like that they treated it as kind of this task orientation. Just let's get this task done. So once they have gotten their question answer, okay, let's move on to the next thing. And so in, 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 term, in terms of a research activity, was it a task design issue? Uh, you, you said that you analyzed it post hoc. So you did, this wasn't designed to be a research activity. Yeah. So was it was it the design of the task that maybe make makes it difficult to draw these conclusions? I don't think so, no. because the other pair did the same task, right? Um, it, it's more about the participants' orientation to it. Are they orienting to it 
as a site for getting using the language in a meaningful way, or are they look, looking at it as a site for let's get our grade and get out of here? Well, right. you mentioned grades, and I, I, I noted this down from uh, reading the paper again, and the question of whether in these kind of tasks you would give individual or group scores. Um, in your estimation, do you think if the score was uh, given to the group, do you think they'd be more motivated to assist each other to do better? In my experience in the past, no. Why is but that? But that is, because I don't think it's, I don't think that's the deciding factor. I think the deciding factor there is, well, first off, we're fighting as teachers who are interested in getting students to interact. We are fighting 15 to 20 some years of socialization into get the task done, right? How many of us have tried to do an information gap task in the class and just find that the students are looking at each other's papers to fill it out? Well, why are they doing that? It's not laziness. We may think, we may think of it as laziness at first, but no, they, they've been told that in order to complete the task, they have to fill out that handout. And so they're doing what it takes to get that handout filled out because they've been told their whole school career that completion is that. And that goes against what we actually use language for. Mm -hmm. That's not what we use language for. We use language for going out and getting coffee or making a request of somebody. You know, we're doing, we use language out in the world for living. And if we can shift the orientation to the task, to tasks across the curriculum, to look at it as really there's no such thing as being finished. Rather than worrying about finishing, try to do something meaningful with this. And if we can fight against that socialization that they've been brought up in for so long and get them thinking in those terms, then their orientation to the task completion when it comes to the assessment is likely to change. In a lot of ways, the, you know, Emma and Casey in this data, they actually did better in my estimation simply because they stopped caring about their grade. They weren't orienting to it as task completion. They were orienting to it as using the language to communicate. I mean, one of the coolest things, as I was looking at that data at first, I mean, I'm, I nearly jumped up and did a jig when I saw them do this. Casey's saying that uh, not being in school, and right there where she says that, not being in school, and Emma comes in and says, would be more stressful. She co-completes, she completes the other participant's sentence. Now think of how rare that is amongst our students. Right. Now I'm reading, I'm reading it now and they, they, as, as she said, not for me, and then follows it with very stressful. And, and then as, as in your analysis, ending with sotto voce, for me so and it just that the the co-completion of uh sentences implies a couple of things one that they are that they have met that they know each other that they've talked uh either inside or outside of class yeah. um but also it also implies that um the teacher has conferred upon them the confidence to work um, cooperatively, rather than being, as someone, uh, as John often says, 
um, the sage on the stage speaking from the front are encouraging people to actually interact and and lower their anxiety uh, in order to to do that kind of thing. So uh, it's something that's come up when you say completion. It's something that's come up um, during this COVID lockdown that we've had. Uh, one of the replacements that I did for actual um, in-class participation was that I, using the Microsoft Word developer function, I created closed fields worksheets. And, you know, I'd ask the questions and, and they'd be on a PowerPoint and we'd be on Zoom. And at the end of the, uh, at the, end of the lesson, I would say, right, save that document right now. Doesn't matter. Whatever you filled out, save it, upload it to the LMS. You're done. This is your attendance. It's nothing to do with your, um, you know, whatever you've put in there. It's not going to change your grade. This is just a notice that you have attended this lesson. And so you'd have 50 people in the class and five days later, there'd only be like 25 uploaded. And I actually asked them when they came back to class, I was like, why did you not, why did you wait until the end to upload your paper? It's like, well, I wanted to go back and check. I wanted to go back and fill it in. I wanted to go back and put in better answers. I was like, there's no such thing as a better answer. It's your answer at the time. It's yeah. what would happen if you were in the class at that time. Um, now, one of the things that I've, I've brought up on the podcast before is how important it is to me that research have a practical outcome. And recently, we went, myself and Jonathan went to the first face-to-face -face, um, conference that we've done in two and a half years. Yeah. It's great, fantastic. And I've always said that I would like to have a category of presentations that were marked MM. And MM would mean Monday morning. You watch the presentation on a Saturday and Monday morning, you can go into your classroom and make your class better by what's just why, what you've just seen. And uh, it was nice to see at the end of your paper that you included the section on implications and practical concerns. So practically, people listening to this podcast talking about the research that you've done is there anything that they could do in their classrooms that would improve this kind of communication? Do you have any lesson activities that, that to encourage students to be to use physicality and gesture in their communications? So one of the things that uh, I do with my communications classes here, so. In the lead up to their, we're on the quarter system here. And mm -hmm. in the lead up to what we're doing uh, for the first quarter uh, final, you know, they're doing how-to videos. And uh, I ask them to, you know, watch a bunch of uh, YouTube videos on how to cook, how to fix a bike tire, et cetera, et cetera and that they do a how-to video of their own. And in general, you know, I tell them this needs to be a hands-on task, right? You're showing, don't, don't show me how to enjoy Osaka because that's not a hands-on task. You know, show me how to cook something, show me how to make something, show me how to play something on an instrument. So that already has embodiment, right? And a lot of it, they're showing their hands uh, while they're cooking something. So that's one part already. But the assessment is partly their video, their how-to video. And they have to do a, I, I kind of feel bad for doing this to them. They still have to do a little bit of Zoom where they are, uh, they have to get together outside of class time on Zoom and record a discussion between three or four of them. They watch each other's presentations and they need to just talk for 20 to 30 minutes. And basically I, I tell them, you know, you can actually start going off in other directions. You don't have to talk about each other's presentations the whole time. You know, if, it's, if it sparks off a story, then run with it. But in the lead up to that, 
I've done something rather weird over the last couple of years. I had a paper that I published in 2019 about a learner of Japanese who was on a study abroad program for six weeks. And it looks at how his repertoire diversified uh, over those six weeks in terms of how he reacted to in the third term to what his host family is saying. So he's asked a question, he gets the answer. How does he show uptake? How does he show how he understands? And I go ahead and I made an, a Japanese, you know, a kanji and kana version of the transcription that I bring into the class. And I have them watch the video, even though this is an English class. I'm having them watch the video from the first week and the sixth week to see how different these interactions are going. Mm. And thinking about what resources are is the participant using, the learner using to show how he understands. Because his reactions were never much more than, uh, even in the sixth week, he does a lot of recycling and repetition, but he brings in the gestures. He brings in intonational features and he's laughing, right? And so it feels like a more natural conversation. And I show the students, I said, this student has only studied Japanese for one year at this point. You've all studied for six, seven years. You're all capable of this. But for some reason, when we are worried about a classroom, we somehow forget that we're capable of this already. Well, you bring up um, one of the uh, approaches endorsed by, is that, that is that, uh, it, it says, it says uh, wearing, that's not wrong. No, wrong and wearing, yeah. Roman wearing, okay. Yeah. Um, uh, that's uh, to have students transcribe their own works which is actually something that i've i've had them do before like record uh, watch video of, of what they've done and then just take a, a section of it and transcribe it and it's very interesting to see what students pick up on yeah like they might even start their own version of the attitudinal facial expression transcription uh even just parentheses laugh you know <laughs> just that they they start to do it, and so being more self reflective, I think is I agree is is one way of bringing out um, this this type of uh, behavior in them, which is perhaps not particularly natural, particularly in the classroom where they're not usually uh, required to do this kind of thing. I mean, we both work in Japan, so yeah. we we have uh, we have an understanding of where the students come from through the school system. Um, requiring this of them as soon as they get to university is perhaps not entirely possible, but it is achievable. Yes. You would agree. Okay, so to finish off today's uh, interview, what are you researching now and kind of what's uh, coming uh, in the future that we should be looking out for? So uh, my colleagues, uh, Tim Greer, Eric Hauser, um, myself and uh, Shekna Amar and Zach Nambu. We're on a, a Kakin, uh, you know, JSPS grant that we call a simulated, how did we call it? We called it swell. So basically what we're looking at is institutions that are non-classroom in the normal sense, where there's still English language learning going on. And so we've got uh, some data that we're getting at a place called TGG, Tokyo Global Gateway in Tokyo, that brings in students and does a lot of role plays as if they, kind of an English village kind of place. Um, and we're looking at how that's going along. Um, we've also, for the same grant, uh, we've gotten a bunch of data from this cooking school one studio is here in town in Kobe and the other is in Naha. And we've gotten about 24 hours worth of uh, recorded 
data from them. And uh, me personally, I'm still working on the notions of engagement and orientation towards task, but really trying to look at it in terms of tasks that go outside of the classroom in that sense. So some of them are still pedagogical, like in this cooking class, but I think other tasks that are, you know, more like real life tasks outside of the classroom as well, the kind of mundane things that we go about. Because in a lot of ways, you know, looking at what Mike Long always talked about with Basically, things need to be meaningful, right? The whole idea behind task-based language teaching is that you know, we, we do have the focus on form that goes on, but part of that includes the focus on meaning. And I feel sometimes that that aspect gets lost in, in our day-to-day just trying to get done with our class, get our grades in, get our assessments done, that we we let that kind of go by. Well, it's, it's why it's so contingent on the teacher and to go back to the idea of the task design. Yeah. If the student really believes that the teacher is uh, has designed this task and they've done it in a way that's going to make them better and is positive and enthusiastic about it they're more likely to put energy into it it's a conversation i've had with uh, dr mark helgerson on his idea in the science of happiness like one of the tasks that he would have students do and he does have students do is he gives each student a piece of chocolate and they have to go out on campus give it to someone explain to them why they're doing it uh-huh. then come back to the class and explain to their partner or their group who they gave it to, why they gave it to them, what the reaction was. Yeah. And it, and he's like, well, you know, giving a gift is oftentimes more enjoyable than receiving a gift, but receiving and so giving it to someone and they didn't know what was going to happen. And just these ideas of these seem like simple tasks. Yeah. But if the teacher is engaged, the student is engaged, the class is uh, cooperative. And also if they're also and that's the thing that I, I like from your analysis in here. If the if the pairs are cooperative with each other, like they trust each other, then you can get a lot more out of the classroom time than just, as you say, grades and worksheets and other such. Yeah. Well, on, on that positive note, thank you very much for your time today. So thank we've been speaking you. to Dr. Rue Birch, who is an associate professor from Kobe University. And uh, when you've completed your research and you have more analysis and results to share with us, you are welcome uh, to return to the show. Great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.